Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, Lily and her family migrated from Asia to Australia when she was in her teens. Now it's the 1980s, and she's a young adult navigating life as a teacher in France, acutely aware of the deep undercurrents of racism as North African migrants, people who share her skin tone, are policed and herded into vans. All while she explores friendship, romance and the disquieting presence of her creepy neighbour. Many years on in the near future, Lyle is working for an Australian government department. With the recent ban on Islam leading to inhumane repatriations, a pandemic and the permanent fire zone casting a pall over everything, Lyle, himself a migrant from Asia, seeks the safe cover of so-called Australian values, while at home he's preoccupied with his children, ambitious wife and strong-minded ageing mother. Two-time Miles Franklin winner Michelle de Kretz's latest book, Scary Monsters, combines two distinct novellas with very loose narrative links into a much bigger work exploring migrant experiences, as well as the scary monsters of racism, misogyny and ageism that continue to lurk across time and place. Michelle de Cressa joins me now very patiently waiting on Skype to talk about her book and the craft behind it. A very warm welcome to you, Michelle. Oh, thank you so much, Mel, for that beautiful introduction. Um, I'm so delighted to be on Backstory. Thank you. Well, this is quite an extraordinary book. I'm sure uh, anyone who picks it up will immediately flip it around and then try to work out how to how to start the book. Can you describe it for listeners? Sure. So, as Mel said, it's made up of two um, narratives. One narrated by Lily. They're both narrated in the first person. So in one, Lily tells her story, and in the other, Lyle tells his. And no matter which one you read first, when you get to the end of that narrative, you have to close the book and turn it over, turn it upside down in order to read the other. So it has a flip format and therefore two front covers, one showing a cherry, one showing blossom, and the reader decides which which narrative to um, to read first. It's such a strange uh, it's such a strange approach, and I now feel a little bit of a sense of loss that I will never know what it's like to start <laughs> from the other the other side. I I started from. Well, I guess you could say it's almost chronological. I started from the cherry rather than the blossom. I think I was just attracted to that cover, if I'm completely honest. Um, mm-hmm. But, 
you know, the idea of these two stories are that they are kind of fairly tangentially linked. There is quite an important narrative revelation in one of them about the other, and I won't go into what that is, but you sort of do, you get that information at some point. When you get it really may colour how you read the stories, which is part of the reason I'm alluding to um, the fact that I wonder how I would have felt if I had started reading the the, um, the one I read first, second. It's a really fascinating structure. I want to know what made you hit on this idea. I certainly have heard some explanations and we'll delve into that um, for, for what effect it achieves, but, but what led you to this particular structural framing? Okay, so, um, I mean, there, there were a few reasons for this flip format and some of them have got to do with the subject matter of the book. And some of them have to do with form. Um, So thinking of subject matter first, the book is very much focused on migrant voices because it tells two migrant narratives. Um, And I wanted the reader to experience just very fleetingly and on a very micro level a kind of bewilderment and disorientation that accompanies um, migration. So when you change countries, um, this feeling that you don't quite know where to go, who changed the story, just that feeling of disorientation, uh, how to how to make sense of the new world you find yourself in. Um, and... A related point is that at one moment in his narrative, uh, Lyle, talking about when he was a a new migrant in Australia, says that he realized that that at some point that the past was no longer a guide to the future. Because when you change countries, um, you know, your way of understanding the world And your way of being understood in the world shifts. It has to undergo adjustment. So that too was something I wanted the reader to experience through this format. So no matter which narrative you read first, it's not necessarily going to be a guide, a clear guide to help you navigate your way through the one that comes next. So that... Uh, you know, as you were saying, you you don't know, you're not sure um, how you would feel if you'd read it the other way yeah, around. Yeah, and I think that's one of the, it's a really interesting position to put the reader in because in a way it is mirroring that experience of it might just be happenstance that you get that piece of understanding or knowledge. It's not because you have a roadmap. You're, you're deliberately not giving uh, the reader that. That's something they have to find out for themselves you know, through trial and error and and you're sort of feeling what it must be like to to have that kind of confusion or, you know, what if I, I choose the wrong thing? In fact, there there is a certainly a theme in in the Lyle section about that, like what if we had have chosen differently, would the outcome be different? And I think that's a you know, I think about that with my own family history there's all these stories with migrant families about, well, we nearly chose to go to this place and we chose here instead. And so you have this whole alternative narrative in your mind of where that that could have gone. I want to I want to kind of drill down. I mean, I, th- this this kind of technical um, creation bears a lot more 
discussion, but I want to break down each of the individual stories first. Let's start with Lily because I did. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and it's certainly the the historical perspective. Can can you uh, describe that story a little, uh, set it up for the reader? We, we have done sure. a little intro, but yeah. Sure. So I started with Lily first, actually, too. So, you know, I wrote Lily first. Um, so Lily is, um, she's 22. It's um 1980, 1981, and she's only been in Australia for about seven years, but now she's teaching English in a high school in the south of France, in Montpellier. And um, it's her first time of living alone. She's lived in student houses in Australia, lived with or lived with her family. Um, so she's negotiating that kind of um, threshold between you know, being being a student, you know, still kind of having connections to um, family and childhood and operating uh, independently as a very young adult in the world. Um, and while she's living in Montpellier, she, um, she makes some friends. Um, there's a young English woman called Minna who becomes her particular friend. Um, and she also, and you know, they they have a lot of um, fun together. Um, and as you mentioned in your introduction, um, Lily is also unnerved by a creepy neighbour who lives a couple of floors below her. So I really, you know, in the Lily narrative, apart from other things, I wanted to capture something of that uncertainty of that moment. You know, when you've finished university, Lily's done a BA, so she has no clear career path. She's wondering what will become of her, what will her future be like. Um, She's read Simone de Beauvoir, and Simone de Beauvoir is someone she aspires to be like, to be bold, to be adventurous, um, to be an intellectual. But at the same time, there is that uncertainty in Lily about where she has, whether she can, um, whether she can um, aspire to all that, and just the, you know, the anxiety that you feel at that time of your life in in particular. So I wanted to capture that kind of very particular moment in life when you've finished one thing and you haven't yet found something to replace it. Yeah, it's this section is rife with those uh, literary illusions that have influenced Lil, uh, Lily in her, you know, pursuit of life and um, her desire to be more like her literary heroes, particularly de Beauvoir, de Beauvoir, and this idea that de Beauvoir had that you know she was uh, out there in the world creating things, you know, or being able to avoid um, the pitfalls that many other women have because she could just, you know, use her own boldness to prevent stuff from happening. Whether or not that is in fact true is another another story. The world doesn't often, re- is not a respecter necessarily of, <laughs> of that, of bold women, um, which is another theme that does get raised. But also Camus is, is brought up here in a very relevant way because, of course, at that time there's this, you know, 
a lot of migrant workers and this real crackdown on on migrant workers and the treatment or mistreatment of North African uh, migrant workers is a very particular thread that's running through and that's causing this incredible disquiet for Lily. She sees, you know, essentially that she is constantly being having her own papers checked every time the migrant workers are checked and uh, because she is, you know, in appearance very similar to them and at the same time, it's just this piece of paper that is preventing her from having a similar fate. It's this thinness of it that is really interesting. Yeah, can you talk a little to that? But also, you know, this idea of she is Australian. She's um, from a migrant background, but she's Australian. And it's that weird thing of suddenly feeling like where you're from, perhaps even for the first time as a migrant, when you're no longer in the place that your family migrated to. Yeah, absolutely. Um so Lily is very conscious that she is there representing Australia. Um, but maybe in Australia she doesn't feel as if she is, you know, really Australian. But in France it's just taken for granted that she is because she has an Australian passport. And the French don't really have, um, this is, you know, in the early um, 80s, they really don't have a very... Um, fixed idea of what an Australian looks like, you know. Um, so they are, unlike the British, say, so um, the French are perfectly happy to um, accept Lily as an Australian. But they certainly know what North Africans look like. And, I mean, at that stage, France was only 18 years um, out from having um, a colony in, in Algeria. And, um, you know, there were all sorts of very complicated feelings around the um, war for liberation that saw Algeria gain independence in um, 1962. And these are very unresolved still at this point. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that's happened during the war, which at that point was still not acknowledged in France. I mean, when you think that at that time in France, um, it was still not acknowledged that the French had collaborated um, enthusiastically with the Germans in handing um, over Jews to be deported and murdered in camps. Um, that was still not officially acknowledged. So you can understand, and, and that war ended in 45, so you can understand that there are still a lot of buried feelings and a lot of buried truths around what went on in North Africa. Um, and the North Africans, who are, who are men, really, they're migrant workers, often men who actually helped the French um, colonials and um, who were therefore granted visas to come to France but are treated abysmally when they're there. Um, and it's, it's hard for them because they, um, you know, apart from sort of the insecurity of you know, what their 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 lives are are like in terms of futures, um, they they often are their families are still in Algeria. Um, so there are a lot of men living in groups on their own. So um Lily at times feels um very harassed by these men. You know, when she's sitting in a park, they will approach her and try to talk to her and try to um, get her to go out with them to have a drink or whatever. 
and she doesn't want this. She wants to be, you know, able to go and sit in public and enjoy her own company. Um, so there are times when, you know, she feels her status as a woman above all um, subject to these male overtures that she doesn't want. Um, at other times, what she feels above all is her status as a woman of colour and she feels utter solidarity with the North Africans. Um, you know, when she's with her friend Minna, they have this little mantra, which is girls against the world, you know, and that's when, you know, questions of, of gender are uppermost in Lily's mind. You know, they are girls against the world and they're making fun of French men and the reactions to them and so on. But, um, you know, I just wanted to show how that kind of intersectionality, you know, how at different times, um, different power structures come into play and um, Lily's reactions to those, to those complexities, you know, as, as we were saying before, it's not, it's not simple. No, and the, the privilege of a certain um, passport as well, on top of that, added into this strange mix. I want to move now into the Lyle section, uh, which is a kind of dystopic near future, which is rather, you know, terrifyingly close. <laughs> <laughs> to the reality of our own. Can you can you describe that a little further, listeners? Yeah, sure. So Lyle has been in Australia, uh, or we would guess for, you know, probably 20, 25 years. He's a middle-aged man. He has um, children in their young, um, in their early 20s. Um, he works for a, a government department called the Department, that um, plays its role in surveillance of Australians. Um, and his wife, Chanel, works for a multinational um, mining company. And Lyle, Lyle's way of surviving Australia and, and actually thriving, Lyle and Chanel are, you know, middle-class and successful um, they, his way of um, managing his new life has been to absolutely reject his past and to embrace what he calls Australian values, which are completely assimilationist values. Um, and so, you know, he seeks above all to, 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 to pass unnoticed in the crowd. Um, and as someone said to me, well, you know, he's a sort of perfect example of middle-aged male mediocrity and actually that is what he aspires to absolutely um but you know i think lyle is not a fool and the values that he has taken on are values that are not talked about in australia but are nevertheless practiced and promoted um but the ones that are talked about so let's say you know part of sort of australian mythology would be things like mateship and egalitarianism and an enthusiastic welcome of uh, multiculturalism but lyle actually sees through that and he sees that what the government's government really values is ruthless individualism 
the advancement of oneself and one's children at the um, exclusion of any idea of collective good. Um, it's the it's avid consumerism. It's the um, fetishization of real estate and uh, the acquisition of, of as much of it as you can get hold of. Um, and, you know, the racism of Islamophobia and strong borders and really basically, you know, wouldn't it be nice if everyone were white? So, so Lyle's Australian values are actually the ones that are that covertly operate in in Australia. Yeah, it's a it's kind of a, um, a you know quite um, targeted, I guess, criticism of you know these like of, of countries like Australia that are sort of trying to have it both ways as well and to a certain extent. I think you sort of do uh, very definitely have uh, in that Lyle section this idea of also a kind of commodification of an acceptable version of, of a non-white race or a non-white person, uh, this, yeah. this sort of, you know, within the parameters of what it is that is seen to be acceptable, not challenging the status quo in any way, which is the, you know, the the thing that Lyle himself has hit upon a long time ago to just, yeah. you know, go under the radar and, and do the things that you need to do in order to be successful in this is to make yourself seem as seem somewhat anodyne, which yeah. is is what he's managed to do. But you've definitely, this is, um, you know, there's there's quite a you know, scathing attack in this, but it's written in a way that that kind of eases the reader into an acceptance that's, it's very, it makes you feel very kind of, you know, complicit, which I think is is also something that, that's happened here. Michelle, I uh, am really keen to talk more about how this book was constructed. Uh, we did just have, touch on a little bit um, of the way that the disjointed nature of the two novellas helped people to sort of experience the disjointed nature of of the migrant experience, but also it challenges the traditional novel structure. Can you speak to that? Because it's it's very clearly something that throughout your career you've you've tried to do is to sort of either, you know, you've worked within the novel structure, but you've also tried to sort of subtly subvert it from within. So I'm I'm interested in this very clear subversion that you now oh, have pursued. Thank you so much. And I will get to that in a minute, but I've been sitting here feeling mortified because I realised that um, at the start of the show, I just jumped in, answered your question and neglected um, an acknowledgement of country. And um, I think it's just a sign to me how, uh, you know, I often just say this acknowledgement of country in rather a rote and perfunctory way um, so to try to counter that, I'm going to borrow the excellent Evelyn Araluen's um, wonderful coinage and call it an acknowledgement of country. And in that spirit, I am speaking to you from unceded Gadigal land, and I pay my respect to respects to Gadigal elders, past and present. Thank you. Um, so, uh, the structure, the the, the novel, um, the structure of the novel, and what it says about the novel, 
um, as a form. Well, as you pointed out, um, Mel, I'm so uh, grateful to you that you did. I have been trying to play with this thing called a novel in my last um, couple of books in particular. And one of the books I read when I was um, oh, close to finishing my previous novel, which was in five separate sections, but had a, you know, a, a character running, the same character running through all of them. One of the books I read when I was near the end of the life to come was a book called The Living by a British Indian writer called Anjali Joseph. And in this book, uh, a novel, Angela Joseph starts off with um, a description of the life of a, oh, a 30-something single mother in the east of England who is working in a shoe factory. And we get into her life. And then after a few chapters, we suddenly shift to the life of an elderly Indian man living in a village in, in um, India. And he's, he's a maker of leather sandals. So you get a few chapters about his life. Then we go back to the um, English woman, more about her, more about the Indian man, and so on and so forth until the end of this quite slim novel. And, you know, you're waiting for some connection to emerge, okay? But really, apart from the footwear thematic, there is no connection. Um, and I just thought how wonderful and admirable and audacious that was of Angelie Joseph to set up readers' expectations in that way and then confound them. And I think this was one of the books that just um, made me think I am going to be braver in the next book. And also, you know, as you go along, this is Scary Monsters is my sixth novel, you know, you don't want to keep repeating yourself, right? Mm. You want to just try and do things differently. Um, and so I thought, well, I'm going to take that one notch further. So, you know, we think of a novel as being a single continuous narrative. And there was Angelie Joseph presenting a novel as two discontinuous narratives. Um, but she had unity of tone, you know, unity of voice. And I thought, well, why don't I try having two narratives that are really um, stark contrasts in terms of voice, in terms of style, in terms of, you know, place, which she had as well, but also time. Um, because I had this desire to just upend the novel as a form, turn that on its head as well. Um, so that was what I did. And as you said, there is a, there is a, you know, a possible uh, narrative bridge between the two, but it is only potential, deliberately so, and the reader must decide for themselves if it really is a link, um, because if it is, then it has quite a profound uh, impact on the fate of one of the protagonists. Um, but, you know, throughout the writing of the, of the two um, books, uh, the two stories, I, you know, I tried to create um, what I would call not um, links, but, but correspondences between the two 
narratives. So apart from the obvious thing that they're both um, narratives um, in which Asian migrants are remembering their lives, um, there are other little kind of echoes, reflections, um, you know, kind of what could I say? I would say um, they're not exactly mirrorings, but they are like forms glimpsed underwater. So something the reader the reader intuits and finds connections um, rather than me presenting direct correspondences. So yesterday I was talking to an interviewer who said to me that um, in the Lyle story she found a link with um, Camus, with The Stranger, the novel, which is quite a big presence in the Lily section. Um, And this was just delightful to me because I had only spotted that at a very late stage after I had written, I think it was a second draft. Um, So I was delighted that she just got that straight away when she read it um, for the first time. So, and it doesn't matter if she didn't, you know, it, people, different readers will get different things out of it, different associations. And what this does is it really means that the reader kind of creates the novel as a whole in their minds. Um, and I know that every act of reading is in some sense a recreation of the novel. You know, we all read a different book, right? Um, But I think with this novel, I really wanted to put that up front. So really, there are these two narratives and the reader, the reader is responsible for, you know, making them into a whole. Such an interesting thing, I think, because we have been so socialised into expecting connections, we automatically try to make them. And I do love that. You're like, because uh, there's so much resonance there if you think about the unending metaphors of that, where it's like you've t- literally turned them upside down. You've, you've placed them against each other. They're separated, but people are, are trying so hard to kind of Ruby's Cube them together. I certainly found that and I was thinking, would it be different if I read it the other way around? And it's just that that absolute desire for unity is mm. uh, is something that is so interesting um, when you think about it in the context of the themes that you're exploring as well. Absolutely. Because I mean, um, you know, unity is what migrant lives don't have, right? There's always a before and an after. There's always a break. Um, and This is the thing I've thought about um, quite a lot recently, how migration is a form of modernity. Because, you know, as you know, um, you know, unity is not a is not a modernist value. Um, And, you know, modernity, what what is what do we mean when we say talk about modernity? We mean basically loss of world, you know, loss of the past. Um, And. But at the same time, maybe a gain in in self-expression, possibly. You know, the loss of the community, but the gain for the individual. And I think that we see that in Lily and Lyle's stories. So, I mean, yes, there is racism, uh, obviously, in the world, uh, worlds in which they find themselves. Um, but you know, not doing the things the way your parents and grandparents did them for centuries is also can be 
a very positive thing, okay? So, you know, Lily has aspirations to be an intellectual, to be a writer, and Lyle, you know, uh, for reasons we might deplore, but nevertheless, you know, he he has freed himself, or thinks he has freed himself anyway, from his past as well. He's certainly living his life in a way that his parents and grandparents did not do. Um, so... But he's also determined to make it a positive outcome. So he absolutely. he's he's absolutely trying to write this story um, and give it, a, a, despite all evidence to the contrary, to give it a good spin, uh, you know, because of the investment that he's made in it. It's a really, it, it does have a, a sort of really a feeling of him being slightly, more than slightly in denial as yeah, well. Yeah, totally. Totally, totally. Lila is a fascinating character. I'd loathe to meet him. <laughs> um, but then the other thing, too, I just wanted to touch on was that, you know, um, there there is quite a lot of um, violence directed particularly at women in this novel. Um, and then there is, of course, the symbolic violence of, of racism um, and ageism. And... Um, so the, the kind of the broken form of the book is intended to to, to echo that as well, that, you know, the, there has been violence done to the form of the, the novel itself um, in, in the splitting. Well, I cannot believe, I'm just looking at the time and I can't believe we've already come so yeah. close to the end mm -hmm. of this show. I just want to thank you so much uh, for being so generous with your time today, and also uh, to, to congratulate you on this on this book. It's really it's quite something, and I think I feel as though I'm going to read it again, and I am going to try and read it the other way around and just see what happens. <laughs> I don't. Again, uh, you know, I am uh, you know somewhat in denial about everything. Still, I I you know I it, I do think that. Uh, that you've offered this kind of uh, puzzle to people to sort of approach in the way that they see fit. And I think having that level of delight uh, with a book uh, that, you know, you, you don't just fall into your old patterns with is really quite lovely. So, Michelle de Kretzer, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for reading it and thinking about it and for having me on the show. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks so much. That was uh, Michelle de Kretzer speaking about her latest book, Scary Monsters, uh, which is out now through Alan and Unwin. It has two covers, uh, as we mentioned. One is a cherry and a sort of on a dark red background and uh, one is a ch light cherry blossom uh, cover. So just look out for both in case the bookseller is trying to mix it up a little. <laughs> Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7 Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. Twitter.